My name is Greg Kodrowski, and this is my podcast, Theology 101. I like to study the Bible, and I don't think the Bible is really that difficult to understand. For the most part, it's really pretty simple, and simple is better. So if you're like me, and you want to know more about the Bible, or if you just want to hear more about the Bible, stick around. And if you want to know more about me or check out my pedigree, Google me or visit my website, theology101.net. Hey, welcome back. Let's finish up our series, this little mini-series in our discipleship series. Let's finish up this mini-series on the goals of evangelism. We're talking about... um, our philosophy of discipleship. We already saw what the Bible said about discipleship. We looked at the word disciple, and we ran that through the Bible, and we defined it. What is it? How does it happen? Is a disciple the same as a Christian? And kind of, yeah, pretty much, in the book of Acts, and uh, tied that stuff together to get a good, solid, uh, biblical theology of what discipleship is. And then we're going to take it, we're trying to take that, that Bible knowledge is kind of one more step and take a look at, okay, well, if this is what discipleship is, well, how does it happen? Okay, not so much the materials and how does it happen this week or next week or this month or this year in our church, but how does it happen in a general kind of abstract sense? And that, that that's what we're talking about with a philosophy, okay? So a philosophy, how does discipleship happen? And we're going to break it down. Well, it happens in two stages. It happens through evangelism and it happens through um, edification. So we make a disciple by evangelizing, and that's how disciples made in the sense of created. He becomes a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then a disciple then begins his lifelong process of of growing in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's edification. Paul says, you know, we've got the foundation. That's Christ, and then where we build upon that foundation, we are 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 we edify on it, and and others help us edify. We build on it, and that's that's growing in Christ, and that's basically this whole process of God restoring the lost image of God in, in or God's lost image in man through this process of, of evangelism and edification. As we edify ourselves or as we help other other believers uh, to become edified and grow in Christ, what we're really saying is we're helping them to be less and less like Adam, like the lost men that we are, and more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ according to God's plan. Now, obviously, um, that process is going to be—it's it's a lifelong process that, that's finalized in that moment of the rapture when God gives us our new bodies, and it's called the, the resurrection, the resurrection and the rapture, when God takes this process, Philippians 1.6, and He finishes what He started in us. And until then, we're, we're just kind of a work in progress. And so it's not so much that, hey, I have arrived, I have been discipled. No, you have not. No one has been discipled in the body of Christ, and we will not be discipled in the sense of having finished our race until we get that new body. So um, let's take a look at what the Bible says about this process, how it how it happens, because if we can understand how it happens, then we can understand our part in it. And if we understand our part in it, then we can start focusing on it. We can start investing our resources, our time, and our effort into what we can do to make these processes happen. And we started with evangelism, obviously. That's the first place to start. We want to see somebody become a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. They need to be evangelized. They need to be saved. And uh, we took and, and took some time, and we looked at four different means of salvation. First, the conviction of the sinner. God convicts the sinner through the testimony of creation and conscience. 
and also by the personal work of the Holy Spirit of God, uh, according to John chapter 16, verses 8 to 11. So that's our first means. God takes the conviction, and he makes the sinner feel bad. And that sinner says, wow, I'm not doing too well, because I know there's a God, and he's a big God, and uh, I've got a conscience, so I know I've done bad. I've done wrong against the God, my Creator, who made me. So I feel guilty, I feel bad, but what do I do? That brings in the second means, which is the cross, the preaching of the cross. Uh, we've got to get out there, preach the cross. Um, how are they going to you know, call upon the name of the Lord and whom they have not heard, and how are they going to hear unless somebody preaches? How are they going to preach? Let's be sent. They be sent. That's Romans 10, 13 to 17. Very, very important passage to understand um, this part of our study in the, in the discipleship and in philosophy of evangelism, um, is this this preaching of the cross. So he, he needs to hear the message of the gospel, and that's where we're starting in this the, these last couple of episodes to pull out the, uh, the goals that we have for evangelism and the preaching of the cross. Well, we have the conviction of the sinner, goal, or means number one. Means number two is the preaching of the cross. And then comes means number three, which is the conversion of the sinner. The sinner has to convert to Christ. He, he has to make that decision to take the, take the faith that God gave him, Romans uh, 10, 17 says, when he hears the preaching of the gospel, when he understands, hears, and understands that gospel message, when he really hears it, uh, he God gives him sufficient faith to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. What he does with that faith is his business. He can place it in the Lord Jesus Christ, or he can just turn his back on it and walk away and be saved, or be, be damned um, and condemned to, to the lake of fire. But the fact remains that when we preach the gospel, um, God's convicting the sinner. We preach the gospel. That sinner has enough faith. When he hears the gospel, he understands that he has enough faith to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. He must repent of his sins and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's got to convert to Christ. So the conversion, once he does that, the conversion, his decision does not save him. He turns, believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thereby fulfills the conditions that God established for salvation in the Palestinian covenant in Deuteronomy 30. If you want some homework, okay, that's where that all started. That's why Paul quotes Deuteronomy 30, the Palestinian covenant, in the same context in Romans chapter 10. That's where we see God establish the uh, conditions for salvation from Deuteronomy 30 all throughout the rest of the Bible. And then, after the, the sinner converts, we see means number four, which is the uh, regeneration of the sinner. So God forgives the sinner of all his sins, and he regenerates him through this washing of the regeneration by the Spirit of God. So this is the kind of broad philosophy, this broad abstract idea of, hey, how does a sinner who's not seeking God, who's doing anything and everything but seeking God, how does that sinner get to the point where he repents of his sins, he turns to Christ, and he's born again. How does that happen? Well, there's your means. The conviction of the sinner, the preaching of the cross, the conversion, that decision conversion, and then God forgiving the sinner and, and regenerating him. And that, that left us off in the last couple of episodes, like I said, talking about our part, because when you talk about the weak link and all of that, you know, God's convicting the sinners. He's convicting the sinners through the testimony of creation and conscience, and he's convicting sinners through the work of his Holy Spirit. He's convicting sinners. And when that sinner converts, which is the decision of the sinner, not us, okay, we're, we can't decide for the, for the lost person to be saved, okay, that's his decision, so that doesn't, that, that doesn't fall on us. Well, then God saves him by forgiving him and, and, and regenerating him. And so where's the weak link when we talk about evangelism, and the weak link obviously is us. 
And so that's why we're spending a little bit more time on this lesson than, than others, because it's, it's terribly important that we understand that, number one, yes, we are the weak link. But number two, folks, it's just not that hard. The, the work that God gave us to do, you remember what Jesus said, was it Matthew 11, my yoke is easy, my burden is light? I mean, holy cow, what, what have we seen? I know I took you out into some deep weeds with, with the Great Commission and stuff like that, and that's, that's fun and interesting, and it's, it's necessary to understand we, don't, we, we aren't the recipients of this new covenant that God made through the, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet we participate in that in some way because we receive the salvation that God made possible through the new covenant, the New Testament. And so because we participate in that, we we also participate in the, the main principal responsibility of the stewardship that comes through this new covenant. And so we see that the great commission that God gave to his Jewish disciples at the end of, of the Gospels, where they are out preaching the gospel of the kingdom, he's, that same command to go and preach the gospel to all to all the nations, to go and preach the gospel to all creatures. That same general commission has been given to us. That's why Paul basically repeats it in Romans 10, 13 to 17, you know, how shall they believe in whom they have not heard, and how shall they hear unless they preach, and how shall they preach unless they be sent? And so you look at that and you say, well, what's our part? It's the, it's the send and preach. You know, God has sent us, so we need to go. God said, go, go out into all the world, go, go to Jerusalem, to Judea, to, Judea, to Samaria, to, uh, to the ends of the earth. He says, go. And folks, we got to go. We got to get out of the church. Uh, we got to get out of the church and pass out tracts. We got to get out of the church and go street preaching. We got to get out of the church. And maybe it's through mailers, you know, through postcards in the mail. We got to get out and do something. Uh, put out a, a, a table in front of Walmart. We did that. Um, uh table in front of Walmart. I mean, you meet people, you greet people, and you give them a track, you invite them to your church, you explain the gospel to them, take them through the good test. I don't care. We got to get out, out among the gospel. Or I'm out, out among the lost people to give them the gospel. And, and so we saw we have these two goals, go and preach, go and preach, go and preach. And we made a kind of a big deal out of each one. And I think that's important, um, you know, to get out there, find some way to get out and, you know, be creative if you have to be creative. You know, I'm not against a barbecue. But man, if you're going to do a barbecue to evangelize your neighborhood, you need to give them a heads up. I mean, everybody that comes, hey folks, free barbecue, but right before we eat, I'm going to explain the gospel to everybody, and then I'm going to pray, we're going to eat, we're going to have a good time. So that they, they, it's not this bait and switch. You know, you just tell them, hey, man, I love y'all, and I want you to know my, uh, the, I want you to know the gospel. I want you to hear a biblical presentation of the gospel and take five or 10 minutes and just lay it out. And then pray for the food and have some fun. So I'm not against doing stuff like that, you know, barbecue to preach the gospel. Um, I told you last time a couple of things that I've done to to try and preach the gospel to, to people. And so um, be creative. That's great. But what we need to understand is God wants us to preach, okay? God And preaching is not just standing on a street corner hollering at people walking by. Um, preaching is simply the authoritative uh, communication of the gospel. And you can do that one-on-one. -on -one. You can do that through a gospel track, through a handwritten letter. Um, you know, I, I know a buddy, um, was his, his website is Track Planet. He's got some of those, you know, those 3M stickies, you know, those little sticky pads that you can get. And they got a little sticky part on the, you know, on the back. Well, he's got gospel tracks printed on each sticky and you can buy these stickies. And I thought, 
Wait, wouldn't that be funny? You just grab a pack of those stickies and you go down, you know, or kind of downtown or wherever there's a line of cars that are parked and you put a sticky on everybody's driver window. They're going to see it. They're going to pull it off and they'll read it. So so you got a gospel witness. Um, that's what God wants us to do is to preach, to announce, to communicate to, uh, this, this gospel message, okay? And that's where we saw the big change in the Great Commission, okay? The, the Great Commission in and of itself, go and preach, was not changed. Why? Well, because it's the principle and, and the main responsibility of the, the stewardship that comes with the, the, the New Covenant, okay? But, 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 here's what we need to understand. The content of the gospel has changed. We no longer preach the gospel of the kingdom that the Jewish apostles were preaching at the end of Acts, at the, or at the end of the gospels, the beginning of Acts. God raised up Paul. God gave Paul new revelation. That new revelation came with a new gospel message. We're not preaching uh, the same gospel of the kingdom, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that Jesus and John the Baptist and the, the Twelve preached. No, we're preaching what Paul preached, a gospel of the grace of God that Jesus Christ died, buried, rose again the third day for our salvation for all who would believe in him. And so it's a new gospel. Okay, it's a different gospel, and there's at least four different gospels in the Bible. So just understand that, yes, the, God, the Great Commission is still uh, in force. It's just that God has he's, he's, he's given us a new message. It's the message for the church age. And we made a big deal, too, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just, just touch on this just to remind you um, that the power to save is in the, in the seed, not in the sower. You know, you could go out and sow seed, and it's going to grow. You just need to sow seed, and that's why Paul says in Philippians chapter one that you know whether, you know whether in pretense or truth, you know I rejoice because Jesus Christ is preached, and we need to learn to do that. I've seen a lot of people out on the streets uh, come up to street preachers and criticize them, and actually oppose the preaching of the gospel simply because it irritated them, simply because they didn't like it, simply because. The, the method offended them in some way. And so we need to stop that, okay? If you see somebody witnessing to somebody, speaking to somebody about Jesus Christ, you ought to just kind of throw up a quick prayer of first thanksgiving, and then you ought to rejoice that Jesus Christ is being preached, and then pray for the salvation of that sinner. Um, don't oppose the preaching of the gospel just because you think you know how to do it better, okay? You don't. God does, and God told us to go sow the seed. And, and when that sower went out and he sowed, he sowed seed everywhere. I mean, you talk about an idiot. I, you know, I grew up on a hobby farm for a few years with my stepdad. So, I mean, I saw him, you know, you till the ground and you disc it to, to break it up, and then you, you, you plant your seeds, and, and I, I get it. But this, the sower in the parable of the soils... What did he do? And he went, he went, he just went throwing seed everywhere. You don't throw it by the wayside. You throw it in the, in the thorns. You throw it in the bushes. You know, you throw it out on the roadway so the birds eat it. And you just, you throw it everywhere. And God never said that was wrong. Okay? We can sow seed anywhere, everywhere, however we want to, because that's what God told us to do. Why? Because the power to save is in the seed. It's not in the sower. The power to save is in the gospel. That's what Paul said in Romans 1.16 when he said, you know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's a power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and, to the, and also to the Greek. The power to save is in the gospel, folks. So if we're just out there sowing seed, man, rejoice in that. Okay, we need to get out there and sow the seed. And so 
Paul gives us a great example to follow, and uh, frankly, God gives us several examples to follow in the book of Acts. And so uh, one of my challenges, one of my you know things I say, just do some homework, read through the book of Acts, and just mark every time that you see somebody announcing the gospel message whether it's the gospel of the kingdom or whether it's the gospel of the grace of God like Paul, just throughout the book of Acts, just mark in your Bible wherever you see somebody, go and preach the gospel. And then you'll have a good example of what God expects of us. So uh, with all of that stuff in mind, I just want to finish up this part by talk, you know, talking about our goals of go and preach. I just like to say that it's nothing new. You know, this this plan that God came up with the Great Commission, and I know we make a, a big deal out the Great Commission and the Great Commandment and all of that. You know what? It's, it's just the same message God has been giving us all along. You know, God told Israel to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. He told them that back in Deuteronomy, back in the Pentateuch. So it's it's been God's plan since the beginning, the Great Commandment. It's nothing new. Okay, it's it's not, and this whole idea of go and preach that's not new. So let me just just give you a couple of examples, and I think they'll be very very well known examples. So we don't need to belabor the point. But Proverbs one twenty and twenty two, this start in, in one of the greatest books of wisdom there is, and talking about wisdom personified. Okay, you know in the book of Proverbs how wisdom is personified as a woman. Okay. And wisdom says, it says in verse 20, Wisdom crieth without, she uttereth her voice in the streets. She crieth in the chief place of concourse, in the openings of the gates in the city, she uttereth her words saying. Okay, so so all I want to do is draw your attention to, to this passage to where we have wisdom, God's wisdom personified. And where do we find God's wisdom? Where does God want his wisdom? Well, wisdom is without. She is outside, and she uttereth her voice in the streets. She's in the chief place of concourse where there's people doing business, okay, the concourse. And in the openings of the gates where the leadership gathered for the city, in the city she uttereth her words. So what God wants is for us to be outside, Okay, outside the four walls of our houses, outside the four walls of our churches. We need to be out among the people, among the concourse of the people in our city, and we need to announce the 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 word of God that we have, the message of the gospel. So that's that's wisdom. Another example is Isaiah. And Isaiah's Oh, he's probably one of our favorite prophets. You know, you talk to anybody and you say, hey, you know, out of the prophets, who do you like? And everybody likes Daniel because Daniel's exciting, right? We got all the prophecies in Daniel and all the weird, crazy stuff. And and Dan, you know, one of the captives getting a good job and, and being high up in the cabinet of the president and all that kind of stuff. But when we talk about prophets, you know, that are out there really just hammering it out, man. Uh, Jeremiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. I think these two guys... Probably Jeremiah more than Ezekiel, but Ezekiel still got it in the neck. But Jeremiah really got a, he got a raw deal. I mean, yeah, God called him and God gave him a work. But let me tell you, God gave him a hard work to do. And he gave him a hard work to do among a hard people. And so, um, you know, I complain a lot about a lot of stuff. But boy, you measure me up against Jeremiah and man, I got nothing on him. Um, Jeremiah 1, 4 to 10. Just look what God says to him. It says, And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, 
Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee, and before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. And then said I, here's Jeremiah, the young man Jeremiah, Ah, Lord, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a child. Now, haven't you ever felt like that? Somebody says, hey, let's go street preaching, and you go, whoa, whoa, dude, now, wait a minute, um, I can't do that, right? How many times has that happened to us? I said, Ah, Lord, behold, I cannot speak. For I am a child. The Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child, for thou shalt go, see that, go to all that I, that I shall send thee, and whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. Go and speak, right? Speak with authority. Speak with God's, God's word. It's, it's go and preach. He says, Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand, and he touched my mouth. And the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. Now there's two, there's there's two words there that are key. My words, thy mouth, my and thy. And so, yes, I understand to go intentionally out to evangelize is often very, very intimidating. But what God says to us in comfort is just put my words in your mouth and go and speak those words. You know, if anybody's listening to this podcast has ever wanted to go street preaching, and it's just been too intimidating, you don't have a, a an older, more mature Christian to go out with you and show you how it's done. Here's how you do it. You pick out one passage, John 3.16, or John 3.16 to 36, or um, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Just, just pick out some verses that you think talk about the gospel and and salvation. You, you put stickies uh, beside those verses because you're, you're going to forget where, where they are. That's what happens when we get nervous and we get intimidated and we get scared where our brain just flies apart. You take those, you mark those passages, you walk out where there's people, farmer's market, um, downtown somewhere, um, outside a sports event where people are coming in and there's a public venue, like a public uh, sidewalk you can stand on and, and talk to the people. Um, if you can take a box like a Coke crate to stand on to get yourself up and elevated above people, great. If not, that's fine too. Just go out there and read those scriptures. Just read them once and go home. You could probably just take five minutes, go read them once, and go home. And you know what? That's what God expects of us. It's stuff like that. Because if you go and do that one time, you see how easy it is. You'll be ashamed of yourself that you didn't stay out longer because it was so easy. And so the next time you go out, you'll pick a few more passages. And then the next time you go out, you might start talking a little bit about those passages to explain those passages to the people walking by. And you'll find yourself preaching the gospel. My words, thy mouth. Okay? That's what God wants. It's nothing new. Go and preach the gospel. It's not something new, the Great Commission. It's not new. It's something that God has always commanded his faithful to do, to go and preach the gospel. Now, we need to understand that going and preaching the gospel, especially in a day and age like ours, we are living in times very, very similar to those of Jeremiah. If you've read Jeremiah, you know that Jeremiah is the, one of the prophets, the main prophet who was preaching uh, to Judah right before and during and just after the uh, Babylonian captivity started. And so he had a very, very unpopular job. Uh, he was basically telling the 
um, to Jews in Judah to repent of their rebellion and turn themselves over to Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians who were laying siege to Jerusalem. And he was tried as a traitor and thrown in the cistern. You guys know the story if you've read the book. But uh, he lived right at the end, right in those last days of apostasy, right before God took his people off the promised land and took them to judgment. Okay, judgment being the Babylonian captivity. We're living in those days of apostasy right before God comes and takes his people off the earth in the rapture to take us to judgment, the judgment seat of Christ. And so Paul prophesied that these last days of the church would be days of apostasy. It's a parallel. Our days parallel the days of Jeremiah and the prophets during the last days of Israel upon the earth before they were taken out in judgment to the captivity. Assyria first, and then, of course, uh, the Babylonians took the the Jews of the south. So when we we see Jeremiah out preaching, and when we go out preaching, whether it's passing out tracts or or one-on-one or even just trying to strike up conversations with friends, family, and people that we bump into— um, in our days, folks, it's not an easy task, okay? But the task doesn't change. Listen to what Jeremiah said, Jeremiah 20, uh, one of our favorite passages, I know, um, but I'm going to use it, Jeremiah 20, verses 7 to 9. Now, he says, he, you know, he's, he's kind of having a hard time bearing up under the burden of, of preaching to a rebellious and obstinate uh, people, and he says, O Lord, thou hast deceived me, Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 7. And I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I and hast prevailed. I am in derision daily, he says. Everyone mocketh me. And yeah, you go out, pass out tracts, witness to people, preach. You're going to get mocked, especially today. For since I spake, I cried out. I cried violence and spoil because the word of the Lord was made a reproach unto me and a derision daily. And then I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name. So he's like, I- I've had enough. I'm done. Okay, I'm done. But then he says, but his word was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I was weary with forbearing and I could not stay. You know, a lot of people, they take that last phrase and they think, you know, old Jeremiah, man, he just got all souped up and all motivated. And, and he just went out and said, yeah, man, we're going to go preach, you know, and he's all excited now. Well, I don't think so. Um, what he's talking about there, this burning in his heart, is, is the, the burden of duty. God called him to a job. He knew it. He knew he was responsible before God to do the work that God called him to do, to go and preach. And he said, I'm done with that. It's a derision to me daily. They mock me. I'm tired of it. I'm sick of it. Nobody wants to hear it anyway, so just let them all go off into captivity. Let them all die and go to hell right? He says, I'm done. And yet he waited a little while, and that weight, that burden of his duty and his responsibility, because of the charge that God gave him, weighed upon him. And he said, but his word was in my heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary with forbearing. He says, I couldn't, could not stay. I had to go preach because God told me to. You get it? I had to go preach because God told me to. Go Preach the gospel to every creature. And so um, Ezekiel, yeah, he's in the same boat. And there's uh, several passages we could read in Ezekiel. I'll just read one um, again, not to belabor the point, but I think it needs to be made because, uh, you know, we go out amongst a very obstinate, rebellious people. We go out among a people, amongst the people who think that they have 
a knowledge of God, whether that God be atheism and evolution, or whether that God be Catholicism or or Muhammad, or I don't know what their God is, but they think they have, they think they got all the ideas, they think they have all the answers. Man, they don't. And when we start touching on their idols by preaching the gospel and calling them to repentance, they don't like it. And so here's what what God said to to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 3 to 7. It says, And he said unto me, Son of man, I send thee to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that hath rebelled against me. And they and their fathers have transgressed against me, even unto this very day. For they are impudent children and stiff-hearted. I do send thee unto them, and thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, And they, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, for they are a rebellious house, yet shall know that there hath been a prophet among them. And thou, son of man, be not afraid of them, neither be afraid of their words, though buyers and thorns be with thee. And thou dost dwell among scorpions, be not afraid of their words, be not dismayed at their looks, though they be a rebellious house. Thou shalt speak my words, there it is, thou shalt speak my words unto them, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, for they are most rebellious." And so, yes, I understand the United States today or wherever you're listening in the Western world, we have a very hard ground to till. That doesn't change the commission and the charge that God gave us to go and preach the gospel to every creature. If they hear, wonderful. If they don't, well, then praise the Lord Jesus Christ has been glorified and lifted up, and a sinner has been given the opportunity to repent. I want you to think about Noah. You know, we look at the we look at the Bible and we see the same pattern back in Noah's day. Now, Peter calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. That's in 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 5. Talking about the, you know, the old world, the world before the flood, Noah is a preacher of righteousness. And and so back in Genesis chapter 6, when God said, you know, I, I'm not going to I'm, I'm not gonna contend with man anymore, his years are going to be 120 years. So let's just say God gave Noah 120 years to build this ark. And while he is building this ark for 120 years, Noah preaches God's righteousness. And he invites people to get on the ark with him to be saved. But in the end, when the waters of the, the, the flood began to come down, how many people got on the ark? Well, there was only eight. Genesis 7-7 says that Noah entered into the ark with his sons, three of them, and his wife, and the wives of his three sons. So he had Noah and his three sons and all their wives. So you got four and four, eight people, Noah and his family, 120 years Noah was a preacher of righteousness, and only eight people got saved, okay? And Jesus told us that. He told us back in Matthew chapter 7, okay, and I understand context, but it still applies. Last days of the church age, you need to understand what the days we're living in. People don't want to hear about God. They've, they've got it all figured out, and Jesus said in Matthew seven thirteen and 14, he said, enter ye... In at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Okay, he repeats those he repeats that same concept over in Luke chapter thirteen. In Luke thirteen twenty three, Luke thirteen twenty three says 
Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he, Jesus, said unto him, Strive to enter in at the straight gate, for many, I say unto you, will seek to enter it and shall not be able. They're not able. Why? Because the straight gate is the gate of holiness. You have to repent of your sins and believe on Christ. You have to drop your bags. Okay, you have to drop everything that is is precious to you, your selfishness, your sins. You get you have to drop them and follow Jesus Christ. You have to die to yourself. And there's not many people willing to do that. Most people like the uh, the pleasure of sin, even though it's but for a season. Sin's fun, and they won't sell their sin to get eternity. Okay, so what we see in the book of Luke is the real problem starts. When everybody likes us, okay. Now this is not an excuse. This is not a, uh, you know, a free ticket to say, hey, let's just go be rude and obnoxious to people. But frankly, when you start preaching the gospel and calling people to repentance and pointing out their sin, what you're doing is touching their idol, and that makes people very uncomfortable. And so Jesus said in Luke six twenty six, he said, "Woe unto you." When all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Everybody speaks very well of Joel Osteen these days. Well, why not? He's a false prophet. Not everybody speaks very well of the street preachers or a Bible-believing preacher in a pulpit. No. And so in 6.22 and 23, Luke 6.22 and 23, Jesus says, Hey, blessed are ye when men shall hate you. And when they shall separate you from their company and shall reproach you and cast and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake, rejoice ye in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. So, you know, if you're a false prophet, you can get the whole world to follow you. But if you're a prophet of God, a preacher, you go and preach the gospel God gave you to preach, there's going to be opposition. There just will be. And so just remember, I mean, that's what Jesus Christ said in in John chapter 15 in that passage about, you know, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He says, look, if the world hated me, don't be surprised it's going to hate you too. He says, you're not of the world. If you're born again, you're not of the world. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are of Jesus Christ. You're of God. You're his property. You're his child. And that means we, we kind of are swimming upstream, okay? We're walking against the grain. Everybody else is heading over the cliff into the pit of hell, and we're walking the other way saying, hey, folks, you need to turn around. And they don't want to turn around because, frankly, it's fun. Okay, life in sin is fun. And if it's not fun, at least it's distracting, right? And so, you know, it's like Paul said in, in 2 Timothy 3.12, you know, all that would live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And so that's kind of how we know. It's not, like I said, it's not like we go out and try to stir up trouble and be obnoxious and then pat ourselves on the back and and say, gee, how godly we are. No, it's if we go and preach, if we're just obedient to those two simple commands, how how more simple could it be? Go preach, just go preach, go go preach. Well, if you do that, you're going to suffer some, okay? And before we move on to the to the last point about prayer, uh, I just want to touch on something in uh, John 13. You know, a lot of people run back to John 13 in verses 34 and 35, 
And they say, you know, by our love, people will know that we're Jesus' disciples. John 13, 34 says, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. But this sh- by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. And so one of the objections people throw at us about, you know, the go and preach thing is they say, no, no, no. If we love one another, that's enough, because Jesus said if we love one another, people will know we're his disciples. And you know what? They're right. They're totally right. Um, By our mutual love, one for another, people are going to know we are disciples of Jesus Christ, because that's how disciples of Jesus Christ should act. But this passage doesn't say anything about the salvation of a sinner, Okay, so the sinner knows that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Does that, does that do anything for him? Has he heard the gospel so that he can believe, invoke the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? No. He's just sitting there in his conviction. He says, yeah, I see you. There's, there's a creation, so I know there's a creator. I got a conscience, so I know I'm in trouble. The Holy Spirit of God convicting his heart. He really, really knows he's in trouble. And then he looks at y'all and he sees a bunch of people that love on each other, and he says, man, they're disciples of Jesus Christ. Gee, I wonder how I can be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You see how that works? We have to talk to them. We have to communicate the gospel to people. And then when that sinner, of course, when he converts to Christ and he's born again, he becomes a child of God, God gives him a new, uh, new desires, and part of those desires is to love what God loves, hate what God hates, and God loves his children. And so you see this new sinner, this new convert, learning to love the brethren. And so it's an objection, I get it, but it doesn't hold any weight. Because the objection, it just flies into the face of the command to go and preach. You know, we want people to call upon the name of the Lord, but how can they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without someone to preach to them? And so God sent us to preach to them, go and preach. So those are our two goals. When we talk about a biblical philosophy of evangelism, that's really it. You know, when we talk about the means of salvation, the, the part that's, that, that's ours, that's our responsibility, is to go and preach. That's it. And this brings us to our last point. Well, what about prayer? Okay, why didn't why didn't I why didn't I as if it were my you know my deal why didn't I make uh, prayer a goal of evangelism why well, didn't because God didn't okay uh, it, it's just not you don't see God saying go pray and preach right it's just go and preach go pray and preach no go preach and pray pray go and preach no um, should we pray well yes I mean obviously. Should we pray for the lost? Well, Paul did. Look what Paul said in, in Romans 10.1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. So he says, my heart's desire and prayer to God. This is what I want, and this is what I'm praying. I'm praying that my, my brethren in the flesh, Israel, that uh, these Jews, they'd be saved, okay? And so Paul prayed for the lost. That's okay. We can pray for the lost. Listen to what John said. 1 John 5.14 and 15. You know the passage. Um 1 John 5, 14 and 15, and this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. Is it according to God's will that men be saved? Yes. 
So we can pray and we know that he'll hear us. And if we know that he hear us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. And so, yes, it's God's will that, that men be saved. It's God's desire that all men would be saved. That's John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. That's 1 Timothy chapter 2, 3 and 4. God wants all men to be saved. That's 2 Peter 3.9, that God would have none um, perish, but all uh, come to repentance. And so that's what God wants. And so we can pray. We can pray. We can pray for the lost. But when we go back to the passages like 1 Corinthians 3, 6, look, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered. Who gave the increase? Okay, God did. And so, yes, I understand. Um, we need to pray. When we sow seed, we need to pray and just ask God. Ask God to give, give the increase. But let me just say this. God wants people to be saved a lot more than you want people to be saved. Now, I know. I've, play, I've prayed for loved ones. I've prayed for family. I'm still praying for folks like that. Um, I've still got a lot, of, a lot of things. I really want to see some people in my life, people that I love a lot, get, get saved and get right with God and walk with God and, and do, do right by God. Because if not, there's some real hard times coming. Okay, and I and I pray and I and I pray a lot for them and I cry over it, and I, you know, just like you do. But I have to remind myself that God wants those same people to be saved and sanctified far more than I do. And so let's not get tripped up into this idea that we have to convince God by our weeping and wailing and, and hours and hours of praying and fasting and staying up all night in all-night vigils at the church, praying for the lost, as if we had to convince God to please save this person. Um, I think God is more in the business of convincing us that we ought to get off our lazy duffs and go witness to people that he really, really wants to save. Okay? So... If we just took a brief survey of the New Testament, we would get a very different idea of what we're supposed to pray for. We don't see Christians in the New Testament, like I said, weeping and wailing and fasting and having all-night prayer vigils for the lost. Um, let's just look at a couple of passages, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Here's a passage that deals very, very directly um, with prayer, because Paul says, I exhort therefore that first of all, this is an exhortation from the Apostle Paul, we can consider this a commandment, okay? I exhort therefore that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. And then he begins to kind of unpack that idea and tell us what we ought to be praying for. Verse 2, for kings and for all that are in authority. So we need to be praying for the political and governmental authorities, for those in authority over us in our society. Why? That, me, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Now, I get it. If we stopped right there, you know what, what that would seem like? It would seem like, oh God... You know, I pray that the president of my country would be nice so that I can lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty because really I just want to sit down and watch Netflix and I don't want anybody to bother me. 
You think really that's that's what that passage would mean? That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life? That means we just kind of sit down and twiddle our thumbs or we have like get-togethers and potlucks? No. Because Paul says, for this is, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. Paul says, pray for the government authorities so that you can live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty, leading men to salvation and a knowledge of the truth. You know, with, with all of, you know, I'm, I'm talking in 2021, early 2021. I don't know when you're listening to this podcast. Maybe the rapture happened and you're in the tribulation listening to this thing, man. I don't know. But, you know, in 2020, with all the lockdowns because of this silly, media-hyped, government-backed COVID junk, they locked us in our houses. And you're like, well, I want to go preach. And even when we did finally get back out on the streets, you know, here in Kansas City, we go down to the plaza. We finally did get back down to the plaza. I'm telling you, the crowds, they were down 10, 20, to 10 and 20%. 10, 10 to 20% of the people that were usually out on the plaza that we could preach to and pass out tracts to and witness to, only, only 10 to 20% of those people were there. Most people just stay home now. And so we need to pray for our leaders that, that we would have peaceable lives, that we would have, we would have situations in our society of peace. Why? So we can sit around and watch Netflix? No, so we can get out and go and preach the gospel. And so here's a context for us. Here's something in the New Testament where we have an exhortation by our apostle. It's a command. Pray. Pray for the kings. Pray for the president. Pray for those who are in authority. Pray for the Congress, the Senate, your governor, your mayor. Pray for them so that you can have a quiet and peaceable life, so that you can live in all godliness and honesty. And living in godliness and honesty is living like God, honestly, fulfilling your duty in the Great Commission to go and preach the gospel. So pray for that. Pray for that. Don't pray for a quiet and peaceable life just because you don't like the sound of gunshots during a civil war. Hey, pray for, pray for a peaceable life so that you can go preach the gospel. That's what we need. And then I like this one, Ephesians chapter 6. In Ephesians chapter 6, you know, it's that, um, it's that great passage on the, the armor of God. And Paul, you know, he goes through the whole the whole thing in 6.12. You know, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And so he says in 13, take unto you the whole armor of God. He says, stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. In 14, and he gets down to 18. He says, praying always. And you say, yeah, there's your offensive weapon. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. And watching thereunto all, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And then he adds, hey, hey, while you're doing that, and for me. Verse 19. Paul says, pray for me. Okay, so here's your apostle. Here's the greatest Christian who ever lived. Here's the guy that took a trip to the third heaven and came back and, you know, he said, I saw things, heard things I cannot utter. Um, here's the guy who planted churches on two different continents. And I mean, here's, here's the man. And he says, pray for me. What did he want you to pray for? Verse 19, and for me that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds that therein I may speak boldly as I ought 
to speak. There's your Jeremiah chapter 20, verses 7 to 9, that fire burning in your bones. I ought to speak. My responsibility, my duty, my charge from my God, my King. We ought to speak boldly. Folks, when, when we're praying about you know evangelism and what we see in the New Testament, it's not the weeping and wailing and all-night vigils of, of fasting and prayer for the, for, for the lost. No. It's your apostle, one of the toughest guys who ever lived, saying, you know what, man, preach that I might have boldness so that I don't speak like a wimp, so I can get out there and I can talk to people and speak with authority, so I can go and preach the gospel to all nations. I want boldness. That's pretty cool, okay? That's pretty good. And so that's what we see when the church comes together for a prayer vigil, Acts chapter 4, verses 29 to 30, okay? 29 to 30, chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, verse 29. Here's the prayer of the the primitive church, okay? And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. And then, of course, during the the, the transition, they say, you know, okay, stretching forth thy hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy thy holy child Jesus. And then it says, when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And when the Holy Ghost filled them, what happened? They spake the word of God with boldness. Folks, you want to pray, pray that the government would give us peaceable lives so that we can go preach. And then pray that when we go, we'd preach with boldness. Those are a couple good, solid biblical prayers with regard to evangelism, okay? So this is what we ought to pray. Let's, we can pray for an open door, which is an opportunity, so that we can go. Um, where can I go and preach? Where can I go pass out tracts? Where can I go put those sticky note tracks on people's car windows? Okay, I'm going to do that one of these days. I haven't got those yet, but I'm going to get me some. Where can God give me an opportunity? And then we need to pray, like Acts chapter 4, we need to pray for boldness. God, I want to go, and I'm going to go, and I'm scared, and I'm intimidated, but I'm going to go, and I pray, God, I preach, I preach with boldness, because that's what you want me to do. And that's what our, our apostle prayed. He prayed for boldness. And so let's understand, we'll wrap this up now, let's just understand, here's our responsibility before God. This is God's command This is the great commission to the church. This is the principle, the primary, the main responsibility of our stewardship that God has dispensed to us during the church age. Go and preach. So prayer is, it's simply an expression of our dependence upon God to fulfill the great commission. You pray and you say, God, I want to go. Where can I go? Show me. Please open my eyes. Give me an idea. What can I do? Go. And then you pray, okay, God, I got the idea. Give me boldness. As I go to preach, as I go to speak, as I go to communicate the gospel, God, give me boldness. And so when we're talking about a philosophy of discipleship, it all begins with an understanding of evangelism. Because that's how we make a disciple. A disciple is made. 
as in the sense of he becomes a lost sinner, lost sinner becomes a disciple through evangelism. So how does that happen? What is the process like? Okay, it starts, we saw the means of salvation, kind of this abstract idea of these, these big steps or stages that, that a person goes through to get saved. There's this personal conviction, they hear the preaching of the cross, they're converted by repentance and faith, and then God forgives them and regenerates them by the Holy Spirit of God. And then that begins this whole new process. But when we see those means, we know that part of those means are what God does. And part of those means are what we're required to do. And we're required to go and preach the message of the cross. And that's our goals. And there's only two of them. Folks, seriously, you know, you think about, oh gosh, what does God expect of me in evangelism? You know, I'm not a good evangelist. I don't evangelize well. I don't know what to do. And yada, yada, yada. All God wants us to do is go and preach. That's all he wants us to do is go preach. And so look, if we go preach, and we pray for boldness, yeah, we can pray for the lost people. You know, we have an encounter with somebody. Pray for them. God will give the increase. God will give the increase. And we need to remember that because God gives the increase, our job is not measured by how many people are converted to Christ. Okay, I want to. I really want to. I really want to touch on this subject because so many people, you know, you go out into public ministry, and they'll say, "Well, how many people have you saved by preaching on the streets, or how many people have you saved by passing out tracts?" You, you know what? I haven't saved any. You know, that's God's job. You know, God did not call us to be effective. God called us to be faithful, and frankly, if you want to talk about effective. You know, if you think God called me to go and preach, what is the most effective way to preach the gospel to the most people? It's open-air preaching. You can't, I mean, open-air preaching is what you see throughout the whole book of Acts. Why? Because it is the most efficient way to accomplish what God has given us to do. Go and preach the gospel. That's not to say that the other methods, one-on-one, or, I mean, even using our mailing systems, it's, it, Paul did that, you know, mailing Romans and mailing Hebrews. I mean, he's like sending gospel tracts out to people. So I'm not, so I'm not saying we shouldn't do other things. All I'm saying is we get a lot of people that point fingers at us, okay? We Bible believers, because we just believe the Bible and go and do what God said. And they get their feathers all ruffled up and say, well, you're just being mean to people, and I don't see anybody but getting saved, you know? And that's not the point. God gives the increase. We're called to go and sow. And so how do we measure our success in evangelism? It's not by conversions. Yeah, I'd like to see people saved. I really would. I'd like to see more churches have a revival you know, some of our churches, some of our Bible-believing churches with good pastors and good preaching and good teaching, they're dead. Folks are dead. You go in there and it's dead. People are more interested in football games than they are in, in God and Jesus Christ in the Bible. They're dead. So we, we need, I'd love to see more people saved, new life in the church. It, it, I mean, I want to see it. But that's not, God gives the increase, that's not our job. 
we measure our success in evangelism by how much seed we have sown. We measure our success by how many fields we have filled with the seed of the gospel. Does that make sense? Go and preach. God will give the increase. But we need to measure what we're responsible for. You know, I had the idea, and I didn't do it this year. Um, I think I'm just a cheapskate. I probably just didn't want to spend the money. I thought, you know, at the beginning of every year, I ought to just buy a bundle of tracks, gospel tracks, you know, chick tracks. You get a great discount on chick tracks if you buy, um, what is it, 1,000 of 10,000 of them. 750 bucks, I think, is what he sells them to you. And you get the back printed up uh, custom, you know, quote-unquote, for free. And I thought, you know, at the beginning of every year, I ought to buy 10,000 tracks. And then that's, that's my goal for the year. Pass out 10,000 tracks. See if I can do that. And then if you can do that, well, then maybe buy 15,000 tracks next year, or 20,000 tracks, or really twist your arm and buy 100,000 tracks and see how it goes. So that's how we ought to be measuring ourselves, is we ought to be challenging ourselves with different ideas about how can I go and preach? How can I go and preach? How can I go and preach? Why? Because those are the goals God has given us in evangelism. We go and we preach. Okay? So here at this point, if we think about our, our lost guy, he, he's convicted, he's heard the preaching of the cross, he's converted to Christ through repentance and faith, and God has saved him, he's forgiven him of sins, and he's regenerated him. Evangelism's done. We got a saved sinner. And so what follows in the process, process of discipleship? What follows is edification. You see, this whole process of discipleship has begun with salvation. But it continues for the rest of his life in sanctification. And so that's what I want to talk about in the next couple of episodes. I want to talk about a biblical philosophy of edification. We're going to see means and goals, that God has means by which he makes us grow in Christ. Okay, And I, and I think you might be maybe surprised. I know you'll be encouraged. You, I know you're going to nod your head and go, yeah, I know that's how he does it because we've all been through it. Now I'm going to show you the means in the next episode. And then after we understand the means, then we need to understand the goals, the goals that God has given us in the process of edification, helping either growing ourselves, you know, edifying ourselves or helping another believer uh, edif be edified in Christ to edify him. And so in the next lesson, in the next episode, we're going to start talking about the means that God uses to make us more like Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about the means of edification. I hope you'll come back. Thanks for spending your time listening to my podcast, Theology 101. Simple is better, and it's just not that difficult to learn the Bible so we can do what it tells us. You can find the rest of my studies in English out on my website, theology101.net. And if you do Spanish, tengo más de 15 años de estudios bíblicos disponibles en mi sitio web, teologia101.net. If you'd like to contact me, there's a contact page on my website. You're also more than welcome to visit me any Sunday that you wish. My church information is also out on my website. Remember what Nicholas von Zinzendorf always said, preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. 
Learn the Bible, do what it tells you, and come back for more Theology 101.